Good morning. It is Monday, April 1st. It's 7.49 a.m. And I have an infected hickey. So I'm going to hot foot it over to Kaiser. And hopefully they'll drain it for me. Um, yeah, I do my best to cover it up with a bandana. But you know what? Sometimes you just can't cover everything up with a bandana. So April Fool's, <laughs> I don't have health insurance. I'm not going to Kaiser and I do not have a hickey. Hickeys are not my thing. So um, I just had to slip in a joke there. Um, but it is the anniversary of Lavinia's adoption day. Lavinia is my special animal friend who I'm in service to. And here she is. Come on up. She's screaming at me. One moment. Let me grab her. All right. So I'm holding her. I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful that she is in my life. A beautiful little girl. Um, she definitely keeps me on my toes. And now that I work a lot at home, she's my constant companion. So um, I've had her in my life for about 11 years now and yeah she's a very special little girl moving forward um i took it easy a little bit this week um i just work constantly and so i did some self-care things i went to the spa with april which was really nice we went we, we went to imperial which is kind of a bare bones spa but it's just a go-to if you don't want to make a reservation anywhere um, in Japantown and hung out in the clay fomentation rooms, relaxed. I went to Japantown a couple times this week by myself, actually, and just, I like walking around there and getting little tidbits from the Gia Market. Um... I saw two movies, two matinees. I saw uh, Ash's Purest White, which was a, a really beautiful film um, about this woman who's kind of a girlfriend of a small-time gangster who owns a mahjong parlor, and um, she has to she ends up serving time in prison, and, and then she gets out of prison. And the rest of the movie's about what that's like for her, how China's changed, how her relationship with her boyfriend who is no longer her boyfriend changes and it was very well done. It's a very sweeping kind of an epic film. I loved it. Um, the second film, uh, well, I wouldn't even know if it could be called a film, but, um, the second movie I saw was Dumbo in 3d. What a stinker Bo Binker. Oh my God. I almost walked out of it three times, but then, you know, someone would come by with a cool costume. Like, it had Eva Green in it, and Danny DeVito, Michael Keaton, and Colin Farrell, who I think I might still have a crush on him. I used to have a horrible crush on him years ago, and I will still watch a movie if he's in it. And you know what? What he's... He's not technically a character actor, but what he is, an, but he always plays 
losers with no backbone. And I'm just like, that's in reality, that's not what I like. I've, <laughs> I've ended up with that, but it doesn't mean I like it. Um, he was cute. He was cute in it. Um, but the whole movie was just such a drag that it was just the the children in it were, were very dour and the colorscape or the color, you know, the colorway of the movie, um, they were trying to make it seem like old timey, like a tinted photograph kind of, um, but it, it came off just looking muddy, you know, there were some beautiful costumes in it though. One of the, one of the points of interest though, the thing, the thing that it did not make the movie interesting, Tim Burton directed it by the way. And, um, one of the things that would have been interesting, um, or something that showed a, you know, an informed point of view was that it took place, a lot of the movie took place at Dreamland, which was uh, one of the amusement parks at Coney Island. Um, so that that was kind of cool looking. Um, and the fact that it dealt with the, with uh, exploitation of elephants there was another factor. Um, I believe, I think it was in 1921. I'm not sure exactly the year. But... Um, there was a very old Asian elephant living in in Coney Island proper in inside the Dreamland complex, which surely Tim Burton must have known about this. Um, her name was Topsy, and she was about 30 years old, which is old for an elephant, getting up there, and she was constantly harassed and... Um, and abused by not just the uh, the patrons of the amusement park, but primarily uh, the workers in the amusement park, her custodians. And uh, one day, somebody threw a lit cigarette at her, and it got in her mouth. They basically threw it into her open mouth and she went on a rampage and she kind of broke through and she stomped someone to death. She stomped a human being to death. And then later they tried to restrain her more and with a shovel, somebody hit her repeatedly, I think threw a shovel at her. They did something that to injure her and she reacted again violently. I, I think the second round she didn't kill anybody, but, um, she injured some more humans. So they, de- they then decided to, um, hang her as a public, as a publicity thing, as a, as a, as a stunt in, in punishment for her, um, for her killing of, of this, of these victims. Um, they were going to hang her at Dreamland. It was going to be a big event. Um, then some people who were associated with Edison's electric electric company, which by the way, Thomas Edison at this time had stepped away from uh, from electricity. He was moving on to iron ore molecules and things like that. Um, he had he had. Uh, 
sold his interests in in Edison Company, um, just to be clear. But they came up with the idea to electrocute her instead and to, to generate publicity for GE or for you know Edison's company, Edison Company. And um, so they turned that into a big event and a big spectacle. And, you know, it was recorded in, in all the papers. Um, they fed her cyanide pills and rigged her up and shot, you know, hundreds of thousands of volts of electricity through this poor animal. And that's how she died. And people gathered to see it. It was it was advertised, and people went to go see that. And that was this execution of this of this uh, this poor beast. Um, so yeah, that's the nineteen twenties for you. Um, so it's kind of ironic. I, I I don't know if Tim Burton was trying to make a statement by having it set there. Um, you know, he kind of painted himself in a corner since Dumbo. Is essentially a circus animal, you know. Um, <clears throat> so that that was a little odd, um, but it doesn't make you think about the bad old days and how how strange everything is um, and was, and how how adjacent we are to just repeating the past. Um, on Friday. Taylor took me on a little adventure. We went to Santa Rosa, did a little shopping there, and then we uh, went to Pataluma, and uh, we had um, a really good time at this military surplus store slash museum. Uh, it's a small museum. The surplus store is very well organized, though, um, and there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of unusual objects. I. I I personally liked the the tin objects and and various other improvised things like that were made into jewelry or decorative items like you know you know big um, shell casings, co- coconut masks, um, all sorts of things in their spare time. Whittled objects from POWs. There's a good collection of that. Um, they also had a lot of Nazi. Uh, leftover Nazi stuff um, and I guess it was donated by deceased American veterans who had grabbed those items as trophies of you know their conquests and then when they died the family's like I don't want it so um, those were all in cases there were things that were offered for sale though um, which is I don't know how I felt about that. The prices were very, were a lot higher than other items that were for sale. But still, I mean, I know that there's, we we didn't see it happening, but I know that they must be selling them somehow if they're being offered for sale. Um, and also, at one point, the proprietor suddenly had a MAGA hat on. Um, but... It was a surreal world that we that we dipped our feet in. Uh, the museum was beautiful. The clothing, um, the clothing that was offered for sale was really gorgeous. I was really rethinking my wardrobe, and possibly like just dressing like a sailor all the time, and then, or maybe maybe like the winter World World War Two winter gear was just dreamy. Um, 
it really reminded me of Issey Miyake or something. I loved it. So then we went to Ernie's Tin Tin Room Bar, and that is kind of more Napa-ish, Sonoma-like. I just love that area. It's so beautiful. There were sheep and so much greenery and rolling hills, and it, it was just lovely. And, and uh, I had two beers. I had two Pilsner Urkel, which I hadn't had beer in years. So it was worth the bloated feeling, though. Um, and then Taylor had two stone IPAs. Uh, 1.5, actually, because she was driving. Um, and she her portions were smaller than mine. I just want to make that clear. Um, and then we went to La Med and visited Burke. And then walked up the big, the big hill to to uh where noe valley intersects and um that was great i needed to walk that beer off beer beer kind of sticks with me um but yeah it was a well-rounded day and i'm glad that we got to hang out i really missed her um we get really busy sometimes so i wanted to talk a little bit you know thinking about just because I, I sell vintage clothes a lot and antique items and people tend to romanticize the eras that these these objects are from and I just want to let you know it's not that way it's not that way um, that that America has so much blood on its soil we might not have had wars fought here and I know I'm preaching the choir but there are, especially the 1920s, I feel, I don't, I think the thing that emerges is, you know, the devil may care, um, you know, jazz and flappers and champagne and cocaine, but it was a lot, a lot more heavy than that. And um, I wanted to tell you guys a little story before I go, um, something that kind of parlays with the darkness of Topsy the Elephant story. Um so hang on to your seats. This one involves my hometown. This involves the neighborhood that I grew up in, in Indiana called Irvington. I, uh, before I moved to Houston, I lived in Indianapolis. Um, there was a mansion on University Street that was right about, I'd say it's about three to four blocks from my house in Irvington. And originally, it was owned by the this. Uh, it was built by a prominent lawyer, H. Uh, G. Graham, and he and his wife lived there. They were childless, so there wasn't. It was they were kind of empty nesters with a giant nest, and they uh, subsequently he died about eighteen years after the house was built, the mansion was built, and then she had her sister come live with her and then rented, ended up moving out herself and renting the house to a sorority. It was a huge mansion. It wasn't just a house. It was a really large three-story palatial mansion on about an, almost an acre of land. And behind it was a, like a four-car carriage house. So that was kind of, you know, it was kind of the pinnacle of that area um it was for the it was, it was kind of built 
um, the university, it was for like the university, um, kind of like in the, like campus adjacent. It's hard to, it's kind of hard to say or to explain. Um, it, so it, for a few years it was used as a sorority house. And then about five years later, uh, this man named DC Stephenson moved into it. Um, he was a nouveau riche. Uh, he was originally from Houston, Texas, and he he started out as a socialist leader, a small a small time socialist leader in the South, and he I believe lived in Mississippi and Alabama, and um, his day job was a print setter, and he also sold coal. I guess coal shares or shares an interest in in uh, in larger coal factories. Now in Indiana, there's there are coal refineries and and oil refineries. It was a coal coal heated um, coal fueled state. So he eventually ended up um, picking up his stakes and moving to Indianapolis for work and. During that time, he also began to print a Ku Klux Klan magazine slash newspaper called The Fiery Cross. And he started getting, he kind of, he switched from Democrat to Republican as soon as he moved to Indiana because that was the predominant um, political party. And he became very, very active in the Klan. Um... He was kind of a turncoat, as you could see with his changing, switching political parties right that, like that. He was in his, um, I believe he was in his late 20s, early 30s, very ambitious man. And he, um, he kind of had a, a coup with one of, with like the grand, you know, dingleberry, you know, wizard whatever potentate the, their names are so horribly grandiose and um helped to unseat that that grand vizier and um and had the person that he was backing in power in turn he was rewarded and was named the grand dragon of the of the KKK he chose to move into Irvington into that house. He bought that house. And the structure of the house before he moved in was like a, a, a very, it was a, it was kind of a, had a large round kind of veranda that was uncovered. And if you look it up, you'll see pictures of all these adorable sorority girls sitting on the ledge of that giant porch. And, um, it lends itself, you know, it's kind of kind of Greek revival, but not all the way. It's a Midwest, it's very Midwestern take on that. So it's completely diluted into something that's more serviceable. But it was a huge house. When he moved along, he changed the facade. He changed the facade. He put up these, uh, these large, massive Greek columns. He tore down the round porch and he put a flat porch. Um, so it's a straight veranda, kind of like a galley, uh, you know, like the galley type. Um, to mimic the antebellum mansions of the South. 
um, he gave it a gave it a real treatment so it looked like a it looked like it was straight from the south which is pretty incongruent with the rest of the architecture there the rest is a a lot of Queen Anne style houses with um, little uh, turrets and and garrets and that sort of thing very more Victorian style and gingerbread looking houses um, there's even a few Tudor revivals which are quite hilarious so he sets up he sets up shop there and um, he has he wields a lot of influence and you wouldn't think that a northern state like Indiana would would uh, go for for the Klan, but there were a lot of things in Indiana that oppressed and suppressed black people. First of all, you weren't allowed to emigrate. There were until like during between eighteen sixteen when slavery was abolished in Indiana. That's right, slavery was legal in Indiana until eighteen sixteen. Between the years of 1816 and 1862, when the Homesteaders Act was written, freed blacks were not allowed to emigrate to Indiana uh, without a $1,000 bond. Now, $1,000 in in the Victorian era, in the early Victorian era, you might as well offer up a million dollars or, you know, $100,000 more clearly. Um, and you were not allowed to purchase land if you were a freed black man and, and you were trying to take your, your, uh, your female counterpart, your wife over to, to, to marry her legally, you would be sold into slavery to people in Kentucky, which where in Kentucky was a slave state. So that's where the slaves, the enslaved people were coming from at that time, uh, before the end of the civil war, they were coming from Kentucky and Tennessee. So yeah, um, if you were accused of raping a white woman, you would be castrated just straight up and lynched. So for a Northern state, there's this delusion that Northern states were easy places for black people to live. They were very difficult places to live. Fast forward to reconstruction. You have what is known as the Exodusters movement. Even though it was a small movement, it, it, it is a testament to the, uh, the oppression and the unlivability of uh, post-Civil War South for black people. Um, you're dealing with uh, a lot of the Exodusters coming from North Carolina, Mississippi, Louisiana, and trying to go to Kansas. There were there were some safe spots in Kansas where they could go and and possibly partake of the Homesteaders Act, which allowed if you, the the that act said that if you were to um, settle settle on this government appointed land for five years, you could have it for free or pay a dollar twenty five an acre after six months. Um, that a lot of that was tied up in prospectors, developers, and speculators, and there were many rules and and hidden provisos which prohibited them from partaking in that land. Um, that was that was a, an American pipe dream that that disappointed um, people of all backgrounds. Um, it was mostly speculators, and they 
they sure as hell were not going to let any black people. Very few black people were able to su successfully homestead there. A lot of them ended up um, being forced into sharecropping and another form of slavery. But still, they were not experiencing the ones who did escape and who did make the exodus. They were essentially res refugees from even more brutal treatment in the South. A few of them who couldn't make it to Kansas made it to Indiana and Ohio and kind of that adjacent area. There were not very many black people living in Indiana to constitute, you would think, this large uprising of, of this gin ginormous hate group. Um, what they, they, for example, they didn't have segregation in the schools in Indiana. There were no segregation laws in place because there weren't enough black people there to to attend the the schools there. There were there were very few that made it, um, and a lot of them were were um, also sharecropping in in Kentucky. Um, so Stevenson he put his focus not just on black people, but on Jewish, Catholic, and also anyone who was a socialist. He put his, his uh, wrath on there, um, which ironically, he, he was a socialist leader down in, in um, the South, in Houston. It kind of reminds me of young Hitler, which is really, really scary and creepy. Um, so he rose to power by recruitment. Recruitment was insane in that 250,000 men, white men in Indiana were members of the KKK. You know what that is? One third of the population. You think this can't happen? You, you think this can't happen now? You think it, you think that, that, that the, uh, it will totally happen. It will totally happen. They will find a way. These the, they will find a way to ascend to power, and they will they will paint people in the corners. Um, it was such this the KKK had been a, a somewhat dormant organization and associated with hillbillies and and uh, and ignorant people, and um, there were a few there were a few cultural significators though that were that were enforcing. And and uh, propping up the uh, or injecting respectability into this movement, um, money, the money from the recruitment, made gave the organization a lot of power. Um, they could they could buy they could buy politicians at will and control them. They would donate massive amounts of money in the church, if you can imagine. Um, the they would make a deal with the pastor and they would go into your church and they would set up with their little memorabilia or memorabilia regalia and their whole uniforms. They'd go into your church and try to get memberships there right in the middle of a sermon. And that was that was sanctioned by, by and approved by the pastors of those churches. Um, there were also films that one of the, 
that big saga, Birth of a Nation, which glorifies the Ku Klux Klan, you had the president, Woodrow Wilson, who was, who stood up for, for this new KKK. Uh, and this, this was happening in, in middle America. Um, this was not the South. Indiana had way more memberships than a, than a lot of other Southern places because of, generally because the, the, uh, the circulation also of the paper, the Fiery Cross, and its distribution, and also the geographical location of, of Stevenson. He was a very strong uh, proponent of prohibitionism. So he touted, you know, virtues of, you know, of, of, of you know, the standards of propriety at the age in the extreme. Um, you know, white women's virtue was, you know, what his cornerstone, which he ironically defiled left and right. Um, in his personal life, though, I mean, the story tells itself, he would have these orgies that lasted for days and weeks. Um, he, he was, he had a very decadent lifestyle. When I was growing up there, there was a uh, rumor or kind of an urban legend that if there were any black people coming for some reason into Irvington, which were at that time, they would probably have been domestic workers or, or some of some sort, um, or clerks, if they were found in Irvington for any reason, he and his henchmen would, would scoop them up and bring them down to the cellar of that mansion and hold them captive and torture them until they died. You wouldn't hear from them again. They would be disappeared. So that was something I grew up learning about and knowing about. And it's very haunting. And that, that mansion is said to be haunted by by those spirits of, of those who, who were, were tortured. Uh, he also had a voracious sexual appetite and most likely, if there were women involved, they were raped by him. So, uh, so he had that he had that slimy specter about him wherever he went. Now, about I'd say half a block away, when you're kind of turning turning uh, turning past to the left of the mansion, was a another somewhat sprawling Victorian home that was yellow and blue when I was growing up. And that's where the Oberholzer family lived. Um, they had one daughter. Her name was Madge Oberholzer. They were German immigrants who kind of went ham on, on the house building, which was, that was um, the way a lot of uh, European immigrants would show their prosperity was uh, through building a lot of rooms and turrets and porches onto their home, um, because you are taxed on your you're taxed on your, the size of your porch, the amount of windows you had, turrets, garrets, um, bay windows, height of your ceiling. You were all taxed on those. So if you you could show your wealth by um, by by overbuilding it, and it's a charming little sprawling Victorian house. It reminds me of like Meet Me in St. Louis or something. She was unmarried, and she was their only daughter. She was 28 years old when she met Stevenson 
at, I believe, a an inaugural celebration for the governor, who he had gotten elected, who was basically Stephenson's puppet. He owned Indiana. That was when she first met him. She, at the time, was working for a literacy commission. She had a children's, there was a children's literacy club that, uh, that she was the overseer of that, that covered all of Indiana, and she also had an adult literacy program. Literacy was one of the um, platforms of respectability that the Klan hid, happened to hide behind. And remember, it was one-third of the population that was in the Klan. Uh, it, I don't know if, if Madge's own father was a member of the Klan, but it's very likely uh, at this banquet, at the at the inaugural banquet, uh, Stevenson had asked her out, and she said no, and he just kind of wore her down. They were neighbors, after all, so she saw him out regularly and knew of his reputation, being that there were, you know, the houses were practically adjacent to each other. Um, finally, she gave in and went out with him a few times for dinner, um, and, you know, she helped him edit this cockamamie book on health, ironically, because, I mean, Homeboy was a candidate for gout as well. He was, I mean, he was very bloated. He looked older than he was because he took really bad care of himself. Um, so that was kind of ironic. It was just another, you know, shallow and hollow platform for for insidious uh, clan rhetoric. Um and they have all these weird, they have all these weird names like Clagon, Klegel, Cleniope, Clenostopoid. Like, it just, it, it's so ridiculous. It's, it's, it's such a horrible, horrible organization and such a shame that it was revived. So, one night she, she had gotten home from, from her, uh, work and by the way uh due to budget cuts the the uh children's reading clubs were going to be cut and so she had asked him for help she had actually gone over to the mansion and uh and w- went to one of his parties he made her stay for one of his parties um and in an attempt to kind of maybe hopefully get some support she stayed now we know what those parties were like Okay, they weren't just a a humdrum party. They were orgies. In fact, they tried to make her drink. And she is not a drinker, especially since she was, you know, she actually believed in prohibition in a real way and lived it. And so she did not drink. And it was like the equivalent to offering her, you know, heroin or something. So she, she ended up you know, suffering through that. And, and after that horrible orgy party that who knows what she went through or witnessed there, she was, she was like, I can't see you anymore. I don't want to be around you. Leave me alone. And he was a man who was used to getting what he wanted. So I I had to kind of fill you in on that part. So she was coming home from a late night at her office and, and, uh, she was had gone up to bed and there was a call her mom answered the phone that it was at 10 at night but Stephenson wanted to go over some papers with her in in regards to her funding and 
and he needed to see her right away before he left for Chicago. He wanted to get it sorted before he went to Chicago. She really did not want to go. She didn't want to go, but she went She went ahead and got, got dressed. Um, it's recorded that she wore a black velvet dress for some reason. You know, weird details when women are involved. And he ended up kidnapping her. And he put her in his his car with the help of his henchmen. She was not a small woman. She was kind of a large boned beauty. Um, she was she was very striking. Um, but yeah, she was a tall woman. And so it was a little hard to get her into the car. But they, they went, they took her to Union Station, which is this beautiful train station in Indianapolis. And they put her on Stephenson's personal car. Okay, there were bodyguards everywhere, but they might as well been made of stone. They were not going to help her or preserve her, her virtue in any way. And in that in that sleeper car, Stevenson, who was quite inebriated, he raped her many many times on the way to Chicago. Now things went slower then, so the trip to Chicago was not just a hop, skip, and a jump. It lasted for hours. He also cannibalized her and he bit chunks out of her face, her breasts, her ankles, her stomach, her back. And he said that he wasn't going to let her go unless she agreed to marry him. And she said, no, he's he's like, I'm not going to let you go then. Somehow when they stopped, she managed to convince one of the bodyguards to let her, to accompany her to the drugstore to get makeup, ironically. So we're dealing, you know, the people around him were kind of goons. So she convinced him and she put a coat on over her wounds and she went and she bought mercury chloride pills which are, those are poison. I can't, that shows you another thing about, about that era in time. You weren't allowed to have alcohol, but you could straight up go and get mercury chloride pills. Those are to be used for home, you know, um, what were then known as female troubles, which are now most likely would be some kind of desperate home, home abortion. She planned on taking the whole box of pills uh, she was in despair. She was completely traumatized and in despair. Um, there, At one point when Stevenson was sleeping, he had a gun next to him. And she was going to shoot him with the gun while he was sleeping. And then she decided not to. And then she said she was going to shoot herself. And I'll, and I'll fill you in more on how I know that detail. Um, so she gets back and she takes these pills. And... She does not receive any medical care at all. She starts coughing up blood, hemorrhaging, and they finally get get back to Indiana. And he does not, he all this whole time does not give her any kind of care because she won't marry him. And she ends up at, at the hospital and he thought that she would just die and they would sweep it under the rug because he was so powerful. But she lived for another month and she died a very slow, painful death. 
she had developed a staph infection uh, in from the bites and that spread to her lungs and that's part of why she was hospitalized and the mercury tore up her stomach um, and that was when she was able to confess all the all the details of, of what was going on in her head and why she had decided to um, kill herself and and why you know she didn't kill him when she had the chance um, so there were there were a lot of things going on and and she had she was very weak but she had enough energy and she had just enough time to get her story out there and then she died Stephenson was tried for rape and murder and uh, and he was convicted he was sentenced to life in prison um, and then all of a sudden membership in the clan deflated considerably but it left its mark it left its dirty shit stain on on the people of indiana um it, it and in the people of america in general because even though that's a s- small state it's a it's a you know it's still it's still america you know there there were all kinds of corruption going on everywhere but that's just a small microcosm from a small place where you have a big a big fish a would-be hitler in a small town you know it took the death of one white woman to send him behind bars, but I know he raped so many black women. I know he did. And he should have never had a chance to be around anyone. And there's so many women that he probably killed and and left for dead. People, women that the rest of society may have thought didn't matter and were inconsequential because that was already ingrained into the laws and to the systems of Indiana. And so those, those women didn't have a voice. And it's, it's a very disturbing, it's a very disturbing aspect of our history. And you can't turn a blind eye to one third of a state being a member of a hate group. You cannot walk away from that. You cannot say that didn't happen. Well, in the 80s, when I was living there in 1986, of course it had new owners. And they were they were nice people, but there were also some uh, tenants that they rented the carriage house out to. Uh, it was a gay couple, and uh, there ended up being a double murder, homicide, suicide. And uh, there were these, there was speculating that there's a third party because um, they were cut up and put in barrels and the barrels got to stinking. And that's how they found out about it. Um, but it's another theme of like cutting, biting of flesh, destroying, you know, mortification, extreme mortification of the flesh, which makes me think that there may have been a ghost that lingered. It's also said that the Ober the Oberholzer home is haunted by Madge. She's a benevolent spirit though, and she sits in the top window and there's a white light that kind of emanates from her, kind of um kind of like Mrs. Allardyce or something from Burnt Offerings. Um but you know some people say she's in a rocking chair, but she's sitting in the window and looking out. Um and looking out into the direction of the Stevenson mansion. 
ironically. Well, that was a very long episode. I have got so much stuff to do. I'm meeting up with Rose. I got to get in the shower. We're going to go shopping. And then I got to do shipping. Um, And maybe I can get her to model. Just remember, guys, when you're out there looking at vintage clothes and beautiful antiquities, just take time to think think about those what it was really like back then and and uh you know we are on the verge of things like that happening again and uh look out look out and be on your guard have a lovely day hope you guys have a great week take care bye-bye